Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. Hosted by me, Biotechniques digital editor Tristan Free, this episode, supported by Resolve Bioscience, will explore the realm of spatial biology, the techniques involved in this approach to biological exploration, and the exciting insights gleaned from these techniques that have led to this approach being labelled Nature's Method of the Year 2020. My guest today is Stefano Pupe, postdoctoral researcher at the German Centre for Neurodegenerative Diseases. So, Stefano, it's great to have you on the podcast. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you. Coming up, I'll chat with Stefano to discover some of the landmark findings that have been brought on by advances in spatial biology and microscopy. And Stefano tells us a little bit about how his research has been impacted by these advances. So we're able to implant microscope lenses into the mice, and we are able to visualize the activity of these cells as they do different sort of behavioral tests. But now what was accomplished recently was to slice just underneath the lens and then run them through multiplexing C2 hybridization. They could correlate that information then to what each cell was doing during behavioral tests. And the results show that, in fact, you can predict the activity of a cell or a group of cells based on this information alone. Stefano also explains why some of the world's largest companies are paying attention to the big data challenges that are posed by spatial biology. There is, in fact, even the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, you know, from the founder of Facebook. They give a lot of money to this kind of software initiatives to try to integrate the spatial transcriptomics data. Google is interested in this. So I think they actually have an interest in contributing to these discoveries. Of course, ultimately, to some benefit of their own too. Perhaps they want to live forever, I don't know. (laughs) Let's hear a little bit more about the techniques involved in spatial biology. Stefano, can you tell us a bit about these techniques? Yes, so um, there are many tests in biology that do not use uh, the information provided by, let's say, quote-unquote, the geography of the tissue. So, for example, we have tests such as PCRs or Western blots in which you need to pre-process the tissue and you you lose that information. So for example, when you were studying, let's say tumors, uh, it's quite crucial to know the location in which each sample was located uh, relative to the tumor itself, for example. And there's a select number of growing techniques that allow you to preserve that information. Okay, fantastic. So it's the idea that if you were taking samples of a tumor to to find different genetic information or different transcriptional uh, information, you're trying to get an idea of where that specific transcriptional data or genetic data has come from, either on the surface of the tumor or maybe close to the center. That kind of information is what you're you're maintaining. Exactly. And not only the tissue, but where it's located, like how it's affecting the rest of the tissue around it and so on. Fantastic. Um, And so what are the kind of techniques that allow you to do this? I mean, you mentioned their PCR and things, but I assume you're moving away from that to to get this kind of locational information. Right. So in order to be able to use that information, you have to use specific kinds of techniques. We already have for a long time, for example, immunohistochemistry, which is basically you stain something in your tissue with antibodies and you can still see the location of each cell on it. So meaning you preserve spatial information in that technique. But uh, what, what is exciting now with the new emerging techniques that are coming uh, is the ability to empower such approaches by, for instance, doing RNA sequencing uh, with in-situ sequencing. So you can basically sequence the entire transcriptome of cells while still preserving it as a, as a tissue uh, block, which was a, a recent development. 
Uh, and you can also combine that, of course, uh, with techniques to evaluate where the proteins are as well. So you have the transcriptome and you have the, let's say, the proteosome, which is quite cool to be able to combine both with spatial information. And so you're you're literally sequencing the RNA on top of, say, you have a, a tissue tissue sample that maybe let's stick with tumors as the um, the frame of reference at the moment, but say a, a cross section or a slice of a tumor. Um, you you literally sequencing the RNA or identifying proteins on that section. Absolutely. And all combined, which is very important before we were able to do this thing separately, perhaps, or with less capacity. And now we have the ability to combine everything together, which is also very cool. Okay. So there's kind of a, a multiomic profiling um, Absolutely. capability. Um, yes. And so what does that aspect, that combination of being able to see, um, as you said, the, the transcriptomes, but then also the proteins at the same time on the same sample, um, what kind of insights does that allow you to gain into that specific tissue that you're analyzing? Well, so to give you an example from neuroscience, which I'm more familiar with, um, this is very important because sometimes the transcripts of the cell get transported to, for instance, the axonal projections quite far from the cell bodies. And you're also interested not only if they have been transported there, but what ended up being produced in terms of protein. And uh, the combination of this, as I said, is quite novel and, and quite interesting to be able to see at, also at the throughput that we're able to do right now. So for instance, we had techniques like in-situ hybridization, where we could see one or two transcripts at a time, but now we can basically see a 15,000 at a time. So the scale of it has changed dramatically. With those increases in, in scale throughput and looking into to neurosciences now, um, what kind of insights have you um, or can you ob obtain from spatial approaches that you can't from other single cell or next generation sequencing techniques? Yeah, well, I think the biggest advantage in my view is exactly this combination of different dimensions uh, in one experiment. So for example, we have single cell RNA sequencing already and that's exciting, but if it's a different niche than spatial-based techniques. So the ability to keep adding, packing information into one experiment I think is key. Uh, so to give one example, uh, in the case of neuroscience, again, we can investigate, for instance, all the transcripts and the proteins, and we can then run the same tissue through, for instance, electron microscopy and find out the synaptic connectivity of each cell. So meaning how they actually are uh, connecting to each other uh, at a molecular level. So that, that kind of uh, procedure is only available for you if you go for spatial uh, based techniques such as these new ones and that's extremely cool so um how are you using these these approaches in in your work what is it that you're trying to determine yeah so my research question is the characterization of a brain area called the medial septum i'm interested in which cell types are there meaning which kind of neurons we find uh, for each different function of this area so it's an area that we know to be involved in for instance memory and reward processing but the hypothesis here is that different, uh, different cells develop uh, in a certain way that allows them to sort of compartmentalize these functions or at least you know, be differentially involved in them. I started my project using single cell RNA sequencing to try to determine, let's say, a set of genetic markers that can differentiate between the cell types. And now then afterwards with spatial transcriptomics, I could see where the cells, cell types were located. And I could also combine this information with other dimensions as I described. So by using, for instance, neuronal tracers and neuronal activity indicators to determine what these neurons are doing in vivo and where they send their axonal projections to. 
so what's what's the most interesting um, discovery in 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 that work that you've been able to obtain so far using um, again those, those spatial biology techniques? Yeah, so our work is not yet published, so unfortunately I cannot go into great detail about it. Uh, but I would say that in general, I was very impressed by the consistency in between my sequencing and spatial transcriptomics results. So I had a, this hypothesis about which markers would be more useful based on uh, single cell sequencing, the, the two data sets I had from that. And I was very pleased to see that, you know, it was extremely consistent with what we could obtain with a completely different technique, which was based on uh, spatial information. So I would say, uh, in general, being new to, to this sort of next-gen spatial techniques, I was very impressed by how much uh, agreement I found between more well-established techniques than that one. So you've, you've mentioned the, the ability to co combine approaches, and again, going back to proteomics and transcriptomics with the same single read. Is there an, an upper limit to how many different types of data um, sets you can generate from one tissue? Is that something that's currently limited to just two? Or is there the ability to, to combine even more approaches? So maybe going to epigenetics with like a taxec and things like that um, at the same time from the same tissue? I think that's an extremely good question in the sense that that's what we need to find out now, uh, which is by through the repeated use of these techniques and through exploring them in different contexts that we can really push it to these limits, let's say. I was already pretty surprised to realize how much actual work goes into each tissue and how it's still preserved at the end of it all. So for example, to get to this, uh, you know, 15,000 RNA transcripts that you can, that you can read, you have to do several wash steps. You have to work with the same tissue for months, actually. And uh, previously, I wouldn't think that's already possible to, to, to do that in a way that preserves it. But the way these techniques have evolved and the way the protocols have you know, improved, together with some, also some approaches uh, related to microscopy, for example. So like light sheet microscopy, to be able to really image through the tissue while keeping it a reasonably big size. Uh, is also quite quite interesting and and then yeah the question is what how much information can we pack or should we pack and I think we're going to find this out in the next years. Brilliant um, and as those um, those advances come with the increased ability to add add more omic um, lenses to to what you're analyzing, what other fields or topics do you think this dawn of spatial biology will go on to impact? Yeah, of course, it's early to tell, but I would say I believe the best use case for these techniques is actually diagnostics. So, for instance, again, use the tumor angle in a biopsy, for example, we could now try to see different indicators of a tumor's growth, as well as the reaction of the patient's surrounding tissue to it, for example. And when this information is more widely available, we can then see what's useful for determining the best treatment options and so on. So I think we're at now at a very exciting level in terms of basic research. Like in neuroscience, I can tell you it has been quite transformative, uh, the use of these techniques. But I think they're reaching a point which they're going to affect also uh, treatment and diagnostics actually quite soon. Um, and so maybe widening out from your research, but just looking at neuroscience, um, yeah. I'm, I'm coming back to it. But yeah. <laughs> are there any... No, no. Um, are there any more discoveries that stand out in your mind that have sort of in, in neuroscience that have um, happened with spatial biology Absolutely. that have enabled a sort of frame shift in the way we think about something or um, have uncovered a, an extra level or layer of detail about um, the brain and neuroscience? No, absolutely. Um, 
So for example, to, to give you one of the latest papers or examples that I think are exciting. Um, so in neuroscience, we have this calcium indicators as they're called, right? We are essentially like a protein that fluoresces in a different way when calcium is inside the cell, which is in, in turn, it's a surrogate for, for neuronal activity, right? So when the neuron is very active, more calcium comes in, the cell is a little bit brighter. So we already are able to image those cells in vivo. So we're able to implant lenses, microscope lenses uh, into the mice. And we are able to visualize the activity of these cells as they do different sort of behavioral tests. And this is already quite exciting. But now what was able to be accomplished recently was to slice this uh, brain slices just underneath the lens and then run them through, for instance, uh, in this case, I think it was a multiplexing C2 hybridization. So I think they, they looked at about 15 or 30 genes. So only this marker genes, so to speak, but they could correlate that information then to what each cell was doing during behavioral uh, tests. And the results show that in fact, you can predict the activity of a cell or a group of cells based on this information alone. So essentially there's a certain way to look at neuronal signatures based on, on transcriptomics that are definitely related to its activity in processing information and, and you know, for the brain to do its, its activities. So it's quite exciting, actually. So, sorry, you mentioned there the sort of beginning stage of that is the, the behavioral study with the mice. Yeah. Um, and you're, you say, inserting a, a sort of microscopic lens into the mice whilst it's, whilst it's alive and functioning and completing these behavioral exactly. um, tests. And then you're using that to collect imagery, which you then compare with your transcriptomic and otomic data. Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. Which, which way is predicting? So is it the calcium channel indicators flashing up that then you would predict what you were going to see in your transcriptomic data? Or was it the other way around? Well, it's both actually. They're correlated, right? So for example, a group of cells that expresses marker number one uh, is found to be more active, let's say, during periods of feeding and leaking or something like that. Meanwhile, marker number two, cells that express marker number two, are doing the opposite, perhaps. They're less active during these periods and so on. So these correlations are what we are starting to uncover. And in the future, also this can lead to potential treatment options or at least a better understanding of brain circuits. Because of course, if the cell expresses marker one or two, they might also express a, a specific receptor that might make them amenable for interference later through pharmacology or other means that we now have available. Okay, so, so that's how you make that connection of, okay, so this, this cell expresses these kind of genes at this level. So we think it's going to be then involved in this kind of behavior pattern, which then exactly taking that to, to different um, areas of, of sciences beyond just behavior, you can then go, that's associated with this kind of behavior of a cell. This is the kind of thing that we need to target um, Absolutely. when treating disease. Wow, yeah. that, that, that is fascinating. That's cool, right? Yeah. That's very cool. Um, <laughs> that's what we're trying to accomplish in, yeah. in this other brain area too. And a lot of people are, are doing this in general, but I think that's what these techniques allow us, you know, they open doors and they allow this sort of like mapping out of different cell types. So, so you, you, um, you mentioned the advances in, in microscopy that allowed things like this to happen. So is that, I think I, it was a while ago, um, I think I've also brought it up in another podcast, but um, I'm, I'm getting my money's worth of this article that I read. Um, but um, I think it was a, a technique that allows you to basically slice off the top of a um, 
mouse's head and replace it with a sort of see-through skull yeah. um, and then have a head-mounted um, imager. Yeah. Um, is, is that the kind of thing that's being used in, in those, um, those studies? Yeah, so that that's another option to do this thing, the calcium imaging part, let's say the calcium indicator readouts you can do through this cranial windows as we call them. But of course that's better for areas next to the surface of the brain such as the cortex and the hippocampus. But the area that I was referring to is a bit deeper into the brain. And for that, they had to implant the lens. But okay. the principle is very similar. So that's those developments in, in microscopy sort of pairing with the um, spatial techniques. Absolutely. And on top of that, that we also have developments in, so for example, to this full protocol that they did, uh, this particular study that I referred to, uh, they use techniques that are also quite new, such as expansion microscopy. So for example, what we need to see when we do this sequential spatial transcriptomics is, is this very small dots that are, you know, relatively small. I mean, not only relatively, actually absolutely small, they're, you know, located uh, that we can find them as small dots when we look, for instance, in a confocal microscope. Um, but so when we're doing light sheets, generally the resolution is a bit lower. And for that, we need to expand the tissue first to about four times its size. So we try to do a technique called expansion microscopy where the tissue essentially is enlarged through the use of kind of like a gel so that it preserves the spatial you know, ratio that it already has. But so they had to do that in order to be able to see with you know, proper resolution, what they were trying to, to map out with spatial transcriptomics and so on. So meaning that's where I, I meant that the combination of these new protocols and new microscopy techniques, they all come together now to allow us to do this too, or allow us to do it better. And, and when you were working with the techniques, are there any common challenges that you come across um, that you would flag for other researchers to look out for, any sort of pitfalls that you can run into? Yeah, so I think, the worst part of working with them is that they are relatively new and you actually are not aware of these pitfalls yet, right? So for example, I would say there might be potential bugs or biases there that we don't know about. Um, we actually have some need for papers to assess that in the future. But I think um, in general, I think what we, we should do or what I have tried to do is that I implemented a pipeline that automatically analyzes data coming from this tissue because of course it's, literally hundreds of thousands of these dots that need to be associated with a specific cell, a specific neuron. And the only way really to do it is with uh, uh, software uh, uh, detection. So automated detection of these uh, features. And so there are different jobs that need to be done. So cell segmentation, spot counting and so on. And the challenge then consists of you to test and troubleshoot, troubleshoot each of these parts to make sure that you're satisfied with the results. So since there is no real consensus yet about the best solution, um, I think it's important to have the internal controls so that you're aware of your own personal error rates. So for instance, in my case, I quantified a small part of my data that I actually did by, by you know, manually analyzing it too. So a small subset I analyzed manually and I compare, let's say the error rates of my own analysis versus the software error rates. And now I have at least some estimate of my false and, and, and false positives or, or false negatives, for example, right? So I think this is very important. So you, you've sort of alluded there to the, the huge amounts of data that are collected from this. And, and obviously yeah. as, as more um, sort of omic lenses get added to what you can simultaneously um, analyze and assess, that data is gonna increase. 
so is, in your mind, is it that that automation that you've implemented in, in your own sort of workflows? Um, is, is that the, the key to um, interpreting the sort of the huge amounts of, of spatial data um, that are being approached, um, that are being produced with these these approaches? Absolutely. We're reaching a point in which, in fact, you cannot do it yourself or manually anymore. It's just not feasible. And so you have to rely on software. And so I think that that's a good thing in one sense, because now we're able to have the throughput to do so much more, right? We can, I'm actually, we're trying to establish a platform at our lab uh, where we can process essentially dozens of brains each week uh, in this protocol. So meaning we, we can do experiments in a really, let's say, industrial capability. Uh, but at the same time, of course, that, yeah, that opens up some, you know, question marks about, you know, how reliable this data is and, and if there are any pitfalls with the techniques we choose, especially to um, count these dots and, and so on. But I think a lot of good uh, researchers are working on it. Uh, there is, in fact, uh, even the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, you know, from uh, the founder of Facebook, they give a lot of money to this kind of software initiatives to try to integrate this data, the spatial transcriptomics data specifically. So it's being developed by them as well. Google is interested in this. There's other, there's many different private and public uh, consortiums working on this kind of problem. So I, I actually think we're gonna we're gonna nail this pretty easily. Yeah, I think well, once you've got um, Facebook and, and Google looking for a yeah. solution to a problem, you're probably not too far off it. Um, I think, uh, so is it from, from their perspective, is it that they're necessarily particularly interested in uh, the insights from spatial biology? Or is it more that they're kind of looking at it from a, here's a problem in a, a specific area with a huge amount of data generated. And if they can crack a way to um, interpret, integrate, and sort of sort all of that data, then that's something they can then apply to their own systems, it be it in the more, more tech space. To be honest with you, I think it's more that they are trying to contribute to the research effort itself. I don't believe that these problems necessarily help them with their algorithms, but I do think that they have, you know, the resources to, to spend to, to help us essentially get there. So to give you an example, this dot counting, right? Essentially, this is a problem that computationally is relatively simple uh, in the sense that, you know, with some contrast adjustments and some other rules, you can actually make it happen quite, quite nicely, uh, especially with new techniques now, such as machine learning and so on, which they already have plenty of resources for that. So I think, for instance, especially the Shen Zuckerberg Foundation, so in, in that case, they are actually putting a lot of money into basic research, not only with this uh, spatial transcriptomics platform, but in other ways, neuroscience is getting funded a lot by them. So I think they actually have an interest in essentially contributing to this uh, discoveries, like, of course, ultimately to some benefit to, of their own too. Perhaps they want to live forever, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but in general, I think uh, they have more to help us than we have much to show for them at the moment. Although I must say, I refer to deep learning, for instance, for example, to machine learning. Some of the insights of machine learning came from neuroscience, actually. And I think they also see that this could be a source in the future of more refined algorithms, too. If we learn more about the basic principles of the brain, we actually can improve our computer science, ironically. Uh, so that's, I think, part of it perhaps interesting um it's it's 
I know it's probably a bit of a reductive point, but um, and it's excellent that they're um, doing so much to um, to help, and and it's probably not something that you hear publicised that much about um, Facebook and Google. But it's also quite quite entertaining to think of the idea of sort of billionaires with where to spend my money next. Well, immortality is a good way to go, so <laughs> give that Absolutely. a go. Um, actually, I think that's that's not too far fetched to think that's the goal. Actually. <laughs> Um, so if you could ask for one thing to take spatial approaches to the next level, you sort of mentioned that they're, they're very new. They're still, still uncovering sort of bugs and things with them. Um, what, what would it be? What would you, um, what would you ask for if a complete fantasy, um, if I could grant you a wish, um, to, to take it to the next level, make it, um, a more established technique. Well, to be honest with you, I think the success of any of these competing approaches at the moment is going to boil down to two factors, and they are reliability and throughput. So the more information we can reliably gather, the better. And the winning combination is going to have to prove that it can deliver consistent results at the same scale, or perhaps even better than any other competing technique we have available at the moment. So for instance, next generation sequencing uh, it, it flourished because of that. It, it, it offered us a way to look at more information than we had before at a, a very, very uh, convenient scale. So meaning right now we are doing experiments with hundreds of thousands of cells and that because of the price that we can get it down to essentially, right? So I think we're going to see there's going to be a, a huge competition to to make a system that works consistently at the easiest possible or, or less costly way so that we, based on that, we're going to build upon. Um, and, and obviously, um, reproducibility is quite a big, big topic at the moment. Um, and with, I think a, a large part of that has been a, a lot of very established techniques. People have got used to a general acceptance of oh, this is how it's done, but there's not actually the set documentation of this is all the minute details you need to do to make sure it's happening the same everywhere. Um, as these kind of approaches um, emerge, is there that kind of parallel effort to try and establish a really set and clear documentation of how each experiment is happening um, in terms of like the protocols and to make sure that it's repeatable um, throughout uh, labs and universities around um, around the world. That's a, that's a very good point. In fact, that is a problem at the moment that we're seeing all over science in general, uh, neuroscience as well. Um, and yes, I think we are more aware of the problem, and therefore we're documenting it better. There are now you know venues in which you can even publish a video or experiments. Right, you can just you know record as you do it. For some techniques, this is more important. Um, my personal feeling, however, is that since spatial transcriptomics is just starting, or spatial biology in general, starting to really rise, I actually see an opposite push at the moment because it is sort of dominated by big companies at the moment. So, for example, you know, nobody wants to really put out their trade secrets, uh, so to say, out there yet. Uh, but I think this will come. And I think in general, uh, we are making a lot of steps to improve this. So for instance, even the fact that the, the other side of the coin of having corporations do it and so on, is that I think they can do it very reliably, perhaps more so than individual labs can. Because individual labs, you know, one person moves and the other one retires and so on is a very high, uh, you know, 
rates of change Hmm. yeah turnover exactly so when it comes to a company i think they are better at keeping things consistent and they're better better at documenting their own protocols so i think i see that you know it's it's going to be a different aspect of how we do science because we didn't used to rely so much on the services but on the other hand i'm excited because i think it really opens the door to more reliability and more reproducibility which is definitely what we need Hmm. well it's an interesting point because i think in the reproducibility debate normally actually industry comes out quite well because they have a, a slightly different set of priorities to um to academic labs say um where the the goal is obviously that everything they do there if if it doesn't work or it's not reproducible you can't build on it foundationally to eventually get to an, an end product um it's kind of useless whereas in well obviously that goes across the board but in academic labs where it's slightly more focused towards making those new insights and new discoveries um, and not maybe ha- having such a large focus on the the fact that you need to be able to build on it subsequently or sort of across the board um, there's that kind of gap in between those those two um, in the way that they are f- both focusing um, yeah so it's interesting to see that there there is that flip side of ah but if a technique is solely being developed by companies patents and um, information sharing can potentially get in the way of, of that standardized approach. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So it's been absolutely fantastic to speak to you. Um, have you got any other last points that you'd like to add? I think it's nice to see that people are maybe starting to hear about and be interested about these developments because, yeah, when I tell about this kind of experience, people usually have this reaction as, wow, we can do that. And yeah, I think it's, it's quite amazing that we're able to do so much Uh, when it comes to research, at least. And that's what I mean. I think we're going to start to see it impact our lives, perhaps in the next 10, 20 years, as these techniques, you know, mature, and we are able to uh, do more with them. Excellent. So Stefano, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Techniques. If you're interested by the topics covered, you may want to check out our InFocus on Spatial Biology, sponsored by Resolve Bioscience, over on www.biotechniques.com. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.